This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, I got to say, Blair, I've been doing this show long enough with you that each year we have talked about your BC Consumer Debt Study and all the data that comes out. And this is for 2020. And um, I'm really looking forward to hearing what what you were able to find out, what Sands & Associates was able to find out. The fact that you talked to 1,800 consumers around the province is awesome. And it's just chock-a-block full of insights. So um, do you want to give a little bit of uh, history or a little bit about the consumer debt study before we get into it? Yeah, I'd be happy to do so. You know, Elaine, this is one of the things I look forward to every year in doing this debt study. Um, and as you mentioned there, you know, it's 1,800 people who've actually filed a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy. So this isn't some, you know, uh, market research panel of Canadians, maybe some have debt, some don't. These are actual people in BC who've taken the step, taken a hard decision to face their debt problem head on. And what's really exciting is they tell us in really detail about what got them into the situation, how they chose their debt remedies, some words of wisdom for others in the future. And it's interesting, too, some of the trends over time. We've been doing this since 2012, and there's definitely things that have changed then in terms of you know the profile of people um, that are getting debt help and even the solutions that they're choosing. And this year was obviously different with the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, so we're able to ask about that. Um, their survey was in field towards the latter half of 2020. So as we all rec- recall, you know that was when you know lockdowns were starting to lift a little bit, but we had been through a good six, seven months uh, where the pandemic had really hit everybody hard. Yeah. So what did you what did you find out? What were some of the things you found out, like uh, the main reasons uh, for folks or consumers taking on debt? Uh, how, mm-hmm. how did that show up for you? What, what did it look like? Well, I think it'll be surprising for, for listeners here. So about 20% of it is what people would normally assume causes a bankruptcy or a proposal. It's people saying, you know, I just got overextended on my credit. I, you know, I've financially mismanaged things, maybe I didn't have good financial literacy or good budgeting skills. You know, that was about 20% of people. But for 80% of people, the cause, the reason why they had to do either a bankruptcy or a proposal uh, was that a life event happened that was largely outside of their control. So maybe it was illness, injury, or health-related problems. Um, Maybe it was cost of living outpacing income, which is more than 10% of people said, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. It's just my costs kept going up every year and my income didn't. Um, For some folks, it was marital or relationship breakdown. That just has huge financial impacts of reestablishing oneself or maybe dividing assets or trying to split up some debt that's jointly incurred. And then the last one was job-related or job loss. So the sum of those is, you know, roughly uh, 80% of folks, it wasn't just financial mismanagement. Um, It was issues that, you know, essentially, if you had a good emergency fund, if you had six to 12 months of your fixed expenses socked away, you might have been able to manage things. But that just seems to have gone the way of the dodo. Most people don't have, um, you know, a whole bunch of of savings socked away. You know, they're, they're living paycheck to paycheck. And when a shock to the system, like an illness, a relationship breakdown, or a job loss happens, you know, they're not more than a couple of cycles away from really needing some help with their debts. 
Yeah, I, this is interesting to me. Uh, the next piece of it that you got over 65% of people were worried about being able to meet their basic costs of living to formally mm -hmm. resolving their indebtedness. And, and that's significant. I mean, all these things compounded together, but boy, oh boy, that's significant to me. Yeah, and you know, I see it day to day just in the inflation and rental costs. You know, when I started to be a, a trustee in BC around 2008, uh, you know, it was rare when I was seeing people more than 25, 30% of their income on rent. Uh, now it's quite often people are 50% of their income or 45% of their income on rent. And that's just a cost of living that, um, you know, really removes a whole lot of flexibility they might have had to absorb a shock otherwise. Yeah. What about credit card? What kind of, what kind of role did that play in this? Well, probably the, more, the most dominant role. So uh, nearly 60% of people um, that we polled, we asked, you know, what was the main reason that you had to file in terms of the debt? Was it the payday loans? Was it a mortgage? Was it something else? And over half, nearly 60%, it was credit card debt was the main type of debt that they were handling. And that was five times more than the next highest type of debt. You know, lines of credit, student loans, they were all, you know, around kind of at the 10, 12% mark. Credit card debt, nearly 60% of people, it was the credit cards that got them into trouble. Interesting. What else did it find sort of in general terms for you? Yeah, these are always interesting just to know the profile of people that are filing a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. The highest proportion of people, their debt load was between $25,000 and $50,000 of debt, and that excludes a vehicle loan or a mortgage. So that's, you know, your credit cards, lines of credit, student loans, payday loans, income tax debts. So that's kind of the most dominant um, share of folks. Now, some people file for a whole lot less, some for a whole lot more. Uh, what was also interesting is 30% of people described their credit rating as ranging from good to excellent at the time they filed a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy. And that just really drives home that point that a credit rating is so completely divorced from overall financial health that a lot of folks, again, 30% of people in this survey said, hey, my credit was great. It might have been seven, even 800, but all I was doing was making my minimum payments and I just knew I wasn't getting ahead. So a credit rating isn't always a great uh, predictor of whether someone's in great shape and just having a good credit rating, it doesn't inoculate you against having to do a bankruptcy or a proposal. It just means according to all the credit rating metrics, you know, you're making all your payments on time, um, but will you ever pay the debt off? Well, but the, the metric doesn't measure that. In this next number too, I think uh, the idea that there's more, or am I to gather that more people are renting versus mm -hmm. owning and still getting into trouble as a result? Yeah, absolutely. An overwhelming proportion. So only 6% of people uh, who filed a bankruptcy or a proposal were homeowners. So it's not the case that, you know, especially in BC with the huge mortgages, huge real estate values, you know, mortgage overextension just isn't a thing that drives people into insolvency. You know, from my experience, the house appreciates in value. They're able to access some equity uh, and they end up being OK. But for 94 percent of people who don't own real estate, um, those are the folks that are filing bankruptcies or proposals. Um, so, yeah, that was that was quite a low proportion. Just six percent of the respondents were actually homeowners. That's interesting. And before we continue on, I just want to add, if, if this is already starting to resonate with you and you're thinking, oh, yikes, this and this and this are something I've already experienced. Maybe I need to take a look at this uh, and start that conversation with someone from Sands & Associates. Give them a call. It's nice and easy to do. It's a 1-800 number. It's 1-800-661-3030. Now, I know it's going to be different this year than other years, of course, is dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact that that's had on consumers. Uh, what, did, what did you find out? 
Well, it was a hugely significant impact. I think that that's not a surprise to folks. Obviously, a lot of people had their income, you know, cut off pretty dramatically overnight. And yes, the government replaced a lot of income with CERB and other programs. But for half of people, or more than half, 54% of people who filed an insolvency after March of 2020, they said the COVID-19 pandemic was the major contributing factor to them needing to seek help with their debt, either a bankruptcy or a proposal. So that was huge. So the pandemic was a factor in half of the bankruptcies or proposals filed since the lockdown in March. And the reason for that um, is 58% of those who filed after the pandemic had hit said, you know, it caused the loss of income and that made their pre-existing debt load unmanageable. And then about 20% said they started to use credit to make up for that lost income. So they just started to dig down a deeper hole. Um, And even a very small percent, 4%, said they had no debt before the pandemic and the pandemic hit them so hard that it actually drove them into either a bankruptcy or a proposal just in the space of since March 2020 to about November when we concluded the survey. And you've spoken about you've spoken to this idea uh, in the past when we've talked about it, that uh, it's often that one thing, like everybody's kind of managing. It's everything's going OK, all the keeping everything in place and and move, you know, doing all right, doing all right. And then, bam, something significant happens. And and, you know, this pandemic crazy. Who knew that who who could prepare for something like this? But that's the thing that tipped these people over the top. Mm hmm. That, that's right, Elaine. And, and what's interesting, too, is, you know, there's there's actually a 24 year low as of now in the number of people filing for bankruptcies or proposals. And, you know, we understood why, because, you know, the government did a lot of income replacements, which was great. It's what they needed to do. Courts were closed for periods of time um, and creditors gave a lot of payment deferrals. But nobody got better financially um, over the course of this COVID-19 pandemic or nobody that I'm speaking with anyway. So what we anticipate is, you know, this is just the lull before the storm. There's a lot of folks who will need the help of a proposal or a bankruptcy as they try to recover from this pandemic. And who knows the timelines of that? We all probably would have thought we'd be out of this by now. We're, We're still deep into it. Yeah. And that and that's and that goes joins really nicely to the next thing I was going to ask you was about the trends. What were some of the trends that you that you discovered in the from the study? Yeah, and that's one of the great benefits of doing this since 2012 is we can just track over time how things have shifted. And one of the main shifts is just the aging of debt. So we found in 2012 that 26 percent of those who filed insolvency proceedings were 55 years of age or older. So either, you know, pre-retirement or getting into retirement, uh, that went up to 40 percent in 2020. So from 26 to 40 percent, that's basically one and a half times the incident of what it was eight years ago. So that's a very significant um, increase in the number of seniors or, again, pre-retirement individuals who are needing help with their debts. Uh, that's the trend I see day after day is, you know, a lot of folks who thought, you know, they'd be enjoying the golden years with no debt. They just haven't been able to pay the debt off over time. And the pensions don't increase as fast as cost of living often. So people do end up in a tough spot if they're in that age group. Hmm, that's interesting. What else did you find in terms of trends? Yeah, on the really positive side, uh, consumer proposals have just grown like crazy since we started doing this segment or th- these uh, surveys. So in 2012, it was only 20% of people had chosen to file a consumer proposal if they weren't aware of it or just didn't fit their situation at the time. 80% had filed for bankruptcy. Um, in this case, 
65% of people had filed consumer proposals. So from 20% in 2012 to 65%, so about two-thirds of individuals, um, compared to bankruptcy going from the option of 80% of people down to about 30% of people who are choosing to file for bankruptcy. Almost always, if someone is able to file a consumer proposal, they feel better about it. It's not as severe as a bankruptcy, and they're able to you know, avoid having to do that bankruptcy filing. So that's a positive thing. There's more awareness of proposals, uh, and people are, are embracing that option. And as we wrap uh, wrap up this segment, I think Blair, the the piece that is really spoke to me in terms of the the really alarming severe impacts that folks experienced as a result of their debt problems, uh, and that it's just out of control for them. Yeah, you know, there's no one that uh, can have their debt problem, you know, put it into a box and worry about it 10 minutes a day or an hour or a week. Everyone that we speak with, it's a constant worry. They just can't get it off their mind that they're in debt. They're just worried about the future. And for three out of five people, the way they knew they had a debt problem wasn't from doing hard math. It was that they felt overwhelming stress. They just thought, I can't sleep. I can't feel good about the future. I know I've got to get some help. Um, and the three and four people, they were experiencing anxiety and depression, um, you know, even as much as suicide thoughts for a small percentage of individuals as well. So debt can be all-consuming. It's a problem you can get help for, um, but you've got to recognize the warning signs. And essentially, if you feel stressed, if you feel like you have a debt problem, now's the time to get some help. It's really uh, it's really part of a snowball thing that, t- that can happen for folks. Uh, and this is why it's such a good, you guys have such good information that's available for people. I want to mention the website. It's sands-trustee.com. And there's a whole section there that's filled with good questions and really thoughtful thoughtful answers on on next steps for you. And if you want to talk to somebody, that's easy too as well. The 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Uh, We've talked about these things before as part of other segments, Blair, but dealing or talking about the myths, and these are Mm. clearly myths when it comes to dealing with debt. Um, And I think it's just really good. Myths and misconceptions uh, because there's a lot of them out there. Yeah, you know, in some cases, I, I love the, these segments as well, because there's maybe more myths than facts sometimes, you know, the amount of, you know, uh, whether it's rumors or innuendo or just, you know, conventional wisdom just isn't true. I think debt is one place where a lot of those things reside. And it's just so good to debunk a bunch of those myths during these segments. And I think part of it, too, is that we get inundated regardless of where we're, if we're watching television, listening to the radio, uh, reading the newspapers, wherever, uh, from all these different organizations, companies, what have you, who are wanting to help me deal with my debt. Uh, when it comes right down to it, a licensed insolvency trustee is the only one that's clearly and, and really with so much finesse and finality and legally uh, help, help somebody deal with it. You know, a licensed insolvency trustee should always be your first call. And, you know, if it's the case, things aren't so serious, you know, they can refer you elsewhere. Maybe you just need some budgetary counseling or a good plan. But for the most part, a licensed insolvency trustee is going to have the solution that you need. We're the only people that can access Canadian law to help you actually legally restructure your debts. And we've got no divided loyalty. So many credit counselors are actually registered as collection agencies, receive all their funding from lenders. So you can imagine the conflict of interest that creates uh, a trustee 
trustee only gets paid by the individual and their accountability is just to the legislation, making sure the rules are being followed. But they're your best ally if you find yourself over your head in debt. And the thing is, licensed insolvency trustees aren't new. What's new is what you're called, right? That's right. So we used to be called trustees in bankruptcy. And, you know, that was probably for the last 50 years. And in about the last seven years, the government updated that to say it's a whole lot more than bankruptcy we help with. So it's licensed insolvency trustee is the new or newish bankruptcy trustee. And and that and thus enters consumer proposals and and all of those things that we talk about on a on a pretty regular basis. Um, so right. let's go let's go to the myths. What's the uh, what's the first one or, or the yeah? What's the number one thing in your mind that you think people should be aware of? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this one, and I like that some of these are a little broader than just, you know, here's a bankruptcy and a proposal myth. But the idea of when you're structuring yourself as being self-employed, a lot of people think if you incorporate your business, you're fully protected. The whole idea of incorporation is you're creating a separate legal entity. And whatever happens to that business, you don't have to worry about that personally. Your assets aren't at risk. And that's a myth because um, essentially um, you can have a false sense of security by not knowing about director liabilities. So a director liability, every corporation has to have a director who is the person, and it must be a person, uh, who manages or directs the affairs of the business. And if you're a director, there are certain things you're liable for that will not be stopped just because you've got an incorporated business. So the number one most popular ones or most common ones that get people into trouble is amounts owing to government for GST and for payroll remittances. So for GST, if you're invoicing GST and not remitting it to government or if your business is doing so, you as the director are personally liable for it. If you have employees and you're supposed to be withholding their tax payments, remitting them to government and you're not doing so, you as the director are personally liable for that. Uh, Another category is the actual wages that you owe your employees. So this just makes intuitive sense. You can't set up a business, promise to pay your employees a certain amount, not pay them, and then say, well, the business didn't pay you, but me as the director, I'm free and clear. No, you as the director have a personal liability for wages as well. Um, And the last category here is just to understand, you know, if you start an incorporated business, it's pretty likely that you're going to have to personally guarantee whether it's leases or loans or different obligations, because who is going to take the risk on a new incorporated business that they're actually going to get paid back if they go into business or have a lease with you or give you a, a loan. So quite often, even though the business is only liable, it's the only way the business is able to achieve a financing or get a new lease is by the proprietor or the director um, actually signing to be personally responsible. So don't assume that just because you've incorporated the business, your personal assets are always protected. You need to definitely pay attention to government amounts and amounts that you have personally guaranteed. So let's stick with government debts. Um, the general thought is that there's no forgiveness for those, and that's from a personal, from a, a single person, uh, either looking at a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy. Yeah, exactly, Elaine. So even in that example we were talking about, if say a business shuts down, you know, it owed GST, it owed payroll remittances, and now the director is personally liable, a lot of people think there's nothing you can do with government debts, you know, other than pay them, or, you know, if you can't pay them, they're going to come and seize your assets, but you've got nothing that you can do on your behalf, and that's completely false. Uh, If you're filing either a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy, government debt is just like every other debt. 
So it can be eliminated as part of a bankruptcy or it can be reduced as part of a consumer proposal. And that could include um, income tax debt. It could include student loans uh, in BC here. It could even include ICBC debt. So, you know, an accident where coverage was denied can have a significant financial impact. That's a, a government guaranteed debt. And that can be dealt with as part of either a bankruptcy or a proposal. Cool. Now, I'm going to mention this phone number at the end of the segment as well, but I want to say if you're thinking you want to take some action, 1-800-661-3030. Those first steps, talk to somebody at Sands & Associates. Uh, that's the very first place to go uh, to, to get some good information to move forward. Um, what are the other myths or what are the, a couple of the other myths that we've got? Yeah, I think a couple of really important ones that come up just again and again uh, is the idea of being very, very careful when you co-sign a debt because you're not signing on for a 50-50 liability. You're signing on to pay off 100% of that debt in the event that the original borrower can't pay it. So it's what's called joint and several liability. Um, so in most cases, it's not wise to co-sign a debt for anybody. You know, you have to think sometimes, well, does the bank know something? I don't know. The bank didn't think this person is creditworthy on their own might have trouble paying it back. So they're not willing to make the loan unless I sign on the dotted line. And I find some people, you know, they just want to be courteous. They want to be helpful. Maybe it's to a different family member. Um, and they don't realize what they're actually signing on for. And for the individual who's borrowed the money and unable to pay it back, it can be a really terrible situation for them because they could file a bankruptcy or a proposal uh, to deal with the debt to the original bank. But they know essentially they're hanging out to dry, whether it's mom or dad, brother, sister or whoever who has guaranteed those debts, but that person is going to be responsible. And legally, you know, the individual who originally borrowed the money is no longer responsible, but morally, they might just feel just terrible putting somebody in a tough situation, having to pay off the debt that they never thought they would have to just when they co-signed. So just be very careful. You're often just enlarging the debt problem when you're getting a co-signer. And, and I know, I, I, I think you are a firm believer in that it's a never a good idea to co-sign. Almost never. I, I can think of a very small number of situations, but in almost every case, just don't do it. It's not going to help anybody at the end of the day if you're co-signing debts. Okay. Speaking of co-signing, if you happen to have a partner, how responsible are you for paying your spouse's debts? Mm -hmm. And this one's easy. Not at all is the answer, but it's really misunderstood because a lot of people, you know, the old adage, you marry somebody, you marry their debt. Uh, you don't. So sometimes I meet with couples where, you know, one person had a lot of debts, one person had a lot of assets, and they just decided to take all of the assets from one person to pay off the other partner's debts, and they didn't have to do that. So just because you marry somebody, it doesn't suddenly make the debts joint. And in many couples, it makes a whole lot of sense for each person to have their own credit card, their own borrowing, so that in the event that one can't get paid back, um, the other person isn't required to surrender their own assets to pay the debts. So, you know, if you have a joint account, it means that, yes, both people would be on the line for it. So a credit card with both persons' name on it, that one is switched. But any debt that's in individual's names, whether it's incurred before or after marriage, cohabitation or whatever, is not something where the liability is shared. It just resides with the original borrower. And I just want to mention, too, again, um, your website is so terrific, sans-trustee.com. It's just filled with such good information, and it covers all aspects of both consumer proposals and bankruptcies. It gives you a lot of information that you can see, figure out uh, as you start this journey to, to deal with your debt situation, uh, give you some answers. And then a really good step, of course, is giving them a call, 1-800-661-3030, and set up that first free meeting. 
You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we talk about bankruptcy, we talk about consumer proposals. This one is specifically about consumer proposals. And there's so many aspects to it, and I think this is great that we're starting out in in this way. Uh, Ultimately, we're going to talk about how much debt can a consumer proposal cut. That's the overall thought of it. But first, let's talk about what a consumer proposal is, Blair, and how it works, because we, we both know that not everybody knows what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so happy to, to give some background. So a consumer proposal, I often say it's the most powerful debt restructuring tool that you've probably never heard of. Uh, what it does is it allows you to consolidate all of your debt uh, into a single monthly payment, but two big differences to what you would traditionally think about debt consolidation. So first off, you pay zero interest, so not a reduced interest, literally zero by law. And second, you only pay back what you're actually able to pay back, looking at your budget and looking at your personal situation. So for a lot of folks, the debts are reduced in the range of 50 to 70, even 80 percent sometimes. So they're paying back, you know, maybe 20 to 40 percent of the debt. They're getting up to five years to pay it off. So it's not a plan you'll be on for the rest of your life. It's a plan maximum of five years and you can pay it off sooner uh, if you're able to. And it's a really flexible tool. Um, Anybody who has debts of more than $1,000, less than $250,000, excluding a mortgage or a car loan, uh, is eligible to make a consumer proposal. And you might think, well, why would your creditors agree to reduce your debt, you know, by 50 up to 70 or 80 percent? Well, the answer is when you're doing it through a licensed insolvency trustee or showing your creditors, well, if you were to file a bankruptcy, everybody would be worse off. They would get less money back and you'd be going through a proceeding you'd prefer to avoid if you can. So the win-win, the win to you is no bankruptcy. The win to your creditors is maybe in a bankruptcy, they get back five, 10 cents on the dollar and you're going to give them back 20 or 25 cents on the dollar. So it's worth their while to work with you. Uh, over 95% of the time, up to 99% of the time, proposals are accepted. So it's a really high success rate. It can be just life-changing for someone who thinks bankruptcy is their only option, while a consumer proposal can just be that option they didn't consider, but can really change their life. And only a licensed insolvency trustee can facilitate a consumer proposal. I think that's really important to know. That's so important, Elaine. And you don't need to pay a cent to explore this option. So no trustee is going to ask you for an upfront payment to meet. You don't need a lawyer. You don't need some consultant to represent you. You just come straight to a trustee. And for free, the trustee is going to be able to structure that proposal. You're only going to pay once you start making the monthly payments. Great. So what are the main advantages to consolidating using a consumer proposal instead of all the other debt management options that we're sort of faced with every day? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So first off, uh, the idea that you don't need to borrow to consolidate your debt. So a lot of people, they start first with their bank. They say, hey, bank, will you consolidate my debt? Take me from 20% interest down to 10 or 12. And the bank often says, you know, well, unless you've got some assets or a bunch of money in the bank showing you don't really need us, we're not going to be able to approve you for a consolidation loan. So with a consumer proposal, there's no borrowing. There's no credit check that determines your eligibility. You might have perfect credit or your credit might show a bunch of missed payments. That's not a factor at all in a consumer proposal where qualifying for a consolidation loan, you'd need to have a really good credit rating to show you're going to be able to make all those payments. 
Um, as I mentioned before, there's no interest at all. So that's just a huge impact um, to someone where they might be planning or you know, maybe paying now 20, 30 percent interest thinking, OK, if it gets down to 10 or 12, that's pretty manageable. Well, how is zero interest that every dollar that you pay goes to reduce your principal balance as opposed to being eaten up by interest each month? And that, and Blair, I think one of the questions that uh, would come up for folks is, is what's it going to like? How do you get paid? Because you're not giving this service away for folks. How do you get paid for that? Yeah, that's a great question, Elaine. And when you do a consumer proposal, everything is transparent. So the trustee gets paid uh, through a government tariff, and there's nothing upfront the individual pays. If we worked out, you know, you could afford to pay $300 a month uh, in a consumer proposal, that's all that you pay, and the trustee fee gets deducted from that before it's paid to your creditor. So roughly 20% of what you pay back in a proposal uh, is kept by the trustee for cost of administration. So on that $300 payment, 240 it will go to your creditors, $60 will go to the trustee, but you're not paying anything extra. If it worked out, you can afford to pay $300 to restructure your debt. That's what you pay, not a cent more for any added fees. It's all deducted before the creditors receive their cut. Okay, so what does a consumer proposal cover in terms of debts? What, what gets looked after under it? And that's so important is to know a consumer proposal can deal with just about any consumer debt that's out there that's been honestly incurred. So any credit cards, lines of credit, um, student loans, even government-issued student loans can be restructured in a consumer proposal, as well as income tax debt, which most people are so surprised to know because the conventional wisdom is if you owe the government money, there's nothing you can do to restructure that debt. You've got to pay it off even if you go into bankruptcy, and that's completely false. If you do a consumer proposal, income tax debt, uh, even GST debt, uh, payroll remittances, things like that, um, they can be restructured all as part of a consumer proposal. Now, before we look at all the, the different factors involved uh, that you may want to consider before doing a consumer proposal, if this is already speaking to you, if you're already feeling like, oh, this is the step I want to take, I want more information, I want to talk to somebody, this is the phone number. It's 1-800-661-3030. If you want to check out their website, it's terrific. It's sans-trustee.com. So let's look at the factors that maybe somebody would consider uh, when putting together a consumer proposal, Blair. Yeah, the number one factor is your household income and your ability to make a payment. So for a trustee to sign off on a proposal, he has to, he or she has to believe it's in everyone's best interest, uh, which means, you know, it's giving the creditors more money than they would get in a bankruptcy and it's helping your interest to avoid a bankruptcy. But we also have to look in detail at your monthly budget and understand, well, what are all those obligations that have to be met? What's the rent payment? What's groceries? Uh, are there other obligations of the family? And a trustee can't file a proposal unless they're totally believed that it's going to be affordable given the uh, person's other obligations and it's going to solve the problem rather than give them an obligation they just won't be able to pay on a monthly basis. So your income, your family size, and your ability to make a payment is a big determining factor on a proposal. What about the amount of debt that you owe? How does that factor in? Yeah, that's really important because for a successful consumer proposal, you've got to be able to pay back, you know, maybe it's in the range of 20 to 40% of the balance outstanding, as we've mentioned. I'm happy we're going to give some examples as well. But if you're owing you know, $250,000, for example, you're eligible to make a consumer proposal, but even 20% re repayment of that is $50,000 over five years. You know, that's 800 and something dollars per month. That's a lot for someone to be able to take on depending on their income. So we need to consider if the debt is so significant that even paying off a portion uh, just wouldn't be affordable. So it looks at the household income, but also considering the amount of the debt and can you offer a reasonable amount back to get your creditors to accept the proposal. 
And this is where going to Sands and Associates really pays off. Um, just the thoughtful consideration that Blair and the staff in all of the offices throughout British Columbia offer you in being able to figure out which is the best avenue to take, consumer proposal, bankruptcy, making some changes here, whatever it is, um, they're so well equipped to help you do that. So let's talk about some of those examples, Blair, because you've got a lot of them, and I think they're great, and I, I bet at least one of them is going to speak to someone who's listening right now. Yeah, these are all real-life stories, so these are exactly people that we've helped with their debt problems. So, you know, day in, day out, this is what we do. So the first one, uh, a 35-year-old skilled tradesman uh, who had some health issues, so he had to stop working for a period of time. Uh, he was okay when he came back in to see us, but he had built up $55,000 in consumer debt, so a big amount. He was getting daily calls from his creditors. Uh, he was making his minimum payments, but he was earning $3,200 a month, and his minimum payments were half of that, $1,600. So so after he paid all the debts, paid his rent, there was literally nothing, uh, no money that he had left each month. So we filed the consumer proposal. It stopped all the calls. It gave him the breathing room, and it reduced his debt from 55000 plus interest every month to $23,400 in total. We looked at his budget, and we figured out, you know, he could afford to make some pretty good payments. He could pay $650 a month to get the proposal done in three years, and that reduced his debts by nearly 60%, saved him all the future interest. And three years from the day he signed the proposal, he was paying it off, moving forward, and, you know, much happier than how he would have been continuing to tread water just making minimum payments. Boy, that's a really good news story for that person. Mm-hmm. All right. That's yeah. the, ex the next example, Blair. Yeah, next one is a little bit quicker. It's a self-employed individual where his main issue was tax debt. He owed $43,000, the majority of it to the government. Uh, he filed a consumer proposal. We, it turned out he could afford to pay $230 per month on his debt. So $43,000, he could afford to pay $230 a month for 60 months. Uh, he paid that off and it reduced his debts by nearly 70%. So gave him a, a payment he could afford and a, a truck that he could follow to be debt-free at a certain date. I know that uh, I know in this ne next example, payday loans uh, figures prominently. And boy, oh boy, that's just so tempting to get involved. But boy, it just I never hear any good news stories coming out of those. No, and maybe there's some good news stories that don't come to see me, but the vast majority of folks, they start off with one and they end up with five or ten by the time, you know, they're, they're coming to see me. It just usually one leads to another because you need to, you know, just keep making all the payments so you're borrowing to do so. Um, this person was a 43-year-old woman. She had some periods of unemployment. And that's when she got into the payday loans uh, was when she just wasn't working, which actually surprised me. She was able to get payday loans, but anyway, um, she had about $9,000 of consumer debts. Uh, with multiple payday lenders, different due dates, different crazy interest rates. Uh, for her consumer proposal, um, she was back working again, and she could afford to pay $200 a month uh, for a total of 24 months. So we settled her debts for $4,800 in total, not a cent more of interest or fees, um, cut the debts by almost 55% in that case. The, the thing that I like about these examples is that we know that the that these people are out there, that there's so many people out there, especially this next one, and, and this will be the final one, uh, a, a, a woman who's lost her husband and increased living costs. I mean, we're all experiencing those. 
Yes, absolutely. So in her case, she was 70 years old. She had recently widowed. She had $17,000 in consumer debt, really wanted to pay her debts, wanted to do what she could. Uh, we figured out, given her income and the increase in costs, she could afford to make payments of $150. And we set up a consumer proposal for three and a half years. She paid back $6,300 on those $17,000 of debt, reducing it by about two-thirds of the total. And she was just so happy. She was facing the debts head-on, paying what she could, and she didn't have to resort to a bankruptcy. Yeah, so good. And and boy, the peace of mind that follows, that must follow for these folks after each of the examples that you gave uh, must be incredible. It, it totally is. Um, you know, I love in my job seeing someone when they're starting and then seeing them when they're finishing a proposal or even a bankruptcy. It's just an incredible transformation, just physically, mentally, spiritually. They get themselves back, you know, back in control again. If you want to find out more, go to the website at sands-trustee.com or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. Get that first consultation as well as to find an office near you. And I know you guys are doing everything uh, 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 socially distanced perfectly, so you're doing uh, meetings online. That's right. Excellent. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment is all about protecting your assets in a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. And Blair, I'm just going to go ahead and assume that that's probably really top of the list for people when they're considering um, either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal is, is what's it really going to cost me? Like, am I going to lose everything? You're absolutely right, Elaine. That's one of the biggest misconceptions is people think you go into bankruptcy. It's, you know, the same as, hey, throw open your front door, look at all your furniture, get carted out, you know, let your neighbors know things are going on um, against you and, you know, lose everything that you have. When the actual fact is quite different. You know, most people that file a bankruptcy, they're actually in a better position to protect the assets that they have. And the majority of people don't actually lose anything when they do a filing. So I'm happy we're going to talk about that today. Excellent. Well, let's get into it. Um, there is a protection and, and, and it's not like, I mean, it feels like it's, that would be very, um, oh, people would just feel so much better knowing that going in. Absolutely. So when you file a bankruptcy, you know, first off, kind of the storm that's swirling around you, you know, the creditors that are calling you, threatened to seize your assets, you know, threatened to take your wages, you know, all that comes to a grinding halt as soon as the trustee is appointed and your creditors are no longer able to continue to ask you for payment. They can't charge you any further interest. They can't call you, text you, send you any letters. If they do, you just send them on to the trustee. The trustee deals with them. And then creditors are prohibited from taking action to seize your assets, which for most people, what that means is, hey, you know, my bank account was at risk before I filed for bankruptcy. Afterwards, nobody can touch it. Your wages are at risk before you file for bankruptcy. Someone can take you to court and start to get your wages seized. Once you're in bankruptcy, nobody can touch your wages either. And what's also really powerful to know um, is that the province, uh, it's different province to province, but BC is quite good. Uh, The province sets up a number of exempt assets. And what that means is when you file for bankruptcy, um, you're allowed to keep a certain level of base assets with the whole idea that you go through a bankruptcy to start again, to get a fresh start, and you really need to have some base level of assets to help you reestablish. 
Okay, so that's the bankruptcy. What about if you filed a consumer proposal or you're looking at doing that? Um, how does that work for your for your stuff when you do that? Well, a consumer proposal is relatively similar in that you definitely keep all of your assets uh, when you file a consumer proposal, um, but you've avoided a bankruptcy proceeding. So you get the same protection. And for the majority of people, you know, you don't surrender assets in a bankruptcy for the most part. We're going to talk about that in specifics. And in a consumer proposal, you never surrender any assets because the way a consumer proposal works is you're making a payment to your creditors that gives them a better recovery than if you did file for bankruptcy and if you had any assets that had to be surrendered your proposal takes those into account. So you definitely keep your assets in a consumer proposal. You almost always do keep them in a bankruptcy as well. So is this the time to talk about this Court Order Enforcement Act? Yeah, that, that's a mouthful, right? But what it means is this is what you're allowed to keep. These are the exemptions that I was alluding to there. And some of these are, are a big surprise to folks. I'm really happy we can spend a couple minutes on them here. So, you know, first off, when you file a bankruptcy or a proposal, you make a disclosure uh, working with the trustee. You do a, a one-page statement of your assets, and you say, you know, here's the categories of items that I have, and here's what I think they're worth. And these categories are considered exempt. So number one is household goods and effects or personal effects. Um, up to a $4,000 value, all of that is exempt. And the important thing to know there is it's not insurance replacement costs. It's not if I had to go buy it again. This is if you had a garage sale, if you had to sell things quickly out of your house, how much do you think you would recover? And just about every estate that I've ever seen, um, your people are well below that $4,000 value because garage sale furniture doesn't go for very much. Used furniture on Craigslist doesn't go for very much. So just about everybody keeps all of their household furnishings. Now, if you've got a baby grand piano, you got the Van Gogh on the wall, yeah, you're probably going to have to sell that. <laughs> but um, for the most part, under $4,000 is well beyond what most people would need to protect all of their furniture. A second category here is a vehicle. So if you've got a vehicle, if it's worth less than $5,000, it's considered free and clear. It's an exempt asset. You get to keep it if you have to go through a bankruptcy, and especially in a proposal, you would keep it. And that also extends to equity in your vehicle. So a lot of people, um, especially these days, you buy a vehicle, you have a loan against it, and then you're paying down that loan over time. You're allowed up to $5,000 of equity in your vehicle before anything is considered in a bankruptcy. So most of the time when people finance a car, you know, say the car is worth $20,000, you drive it off the lot, suddenly it's worth 15000 but you still owe $20,000 on it because you haven't made your first payment yet. You're at negative $5,000 of equity at that point. It would have to get to the point, well, maybe the car is worth $10,000 and you owe about, you know, three or $4,000. That's when you'd actually have more than the $5,000 of equity. So it's actually, it's a pretty good exemption as well. And just about every financed vehicle has little to no equity. So um, usually it's not a factor. If you want to keep your car, you just keep making the payments. Another category that's near and dear, especially in the lower mainland, is home equity. Um, and again, people think automatically kind of a snap, snap a judgment here. If you file bankruptcy, you lose your home. It's definitely not the case. It's actually been a couple of years um, since I've had to work with a client where we've worked with them to sell a home as part of a bankruptcy. And the reason for that is most of the time when people file for a bankruptcy, they've got almost no equity in their home anyway. You know, they've taken out the home equity line of credit, or maybe they've just recently bought. There's not much equity. They haven't had time to appreciate. Um, but you're allowed up to $12,000 of home equity for each person on title. Uh, if you had to file a bankruptcy, if it was a spouse and an individual on, on title, the first $24,000 of home equity, so if the house was worth you know, $200,000, for example, 
and the mortgage was 176000 just picking easy numbers for me, there's $24,000 of equity there. Regardless of the amount of debt you have in the bankruptcy, you'd be able to keep that home. You wouldn't have to pay anything in to keep the equity. So the $12,000 is important. Now, it's good to know as well, that applies in Vancouver and Victoria, the major metropolitan areas there. Outside for the rest of the province, it's $9,000 of equity in, in a home. Now, this next one is a really important one, I think, because it's often the first thing that people think about cashing in when they're in when they're in debt and they want to make a dent into that. uh, And that's their Mm -hmm. RRSPs. Yeah, this is one of the worst things you could ever do is to cash in your RRSPs to pay debt um, because you don't have to do so. First off, they're fully exempt assets. Um, 100% of the value is safe. Now, if you've done a lot of contributions in the last 12 months while you were in debt, and most people aren't doing that if they're in debt, they're not putting money into their RRSPs, those last few contributions, they might have to get pulled out. But other than that, if you've saved your whole life for your RRSP, it's an unlimited value of exemptions. You don't have to surrender any of it. And it can mean coming through a bankruptcy and being having the funds you need to retire or to reestablish yourself, or coming through a bankruptcy and having nothing after because you've already cashed in the RRSPs. And it usually isn't enough to clear off the debts, and it leaves you with a big tax bill as well. So one of the worst things you can do is to cash in your RRSPs to pay your debts. They're fully exempt. Okay. Well, we've we've kind of used a lot of our time already, so I want to finish this yeah, list, so Larry. Much, I think right? it's Im- yeah, and I, yeah. but I think it's important to finish this list for sure. Mm-hmm. So the next yeah, so thing, the, clothing, the, right? People think about their clothing. Mm-hmm. Up to an unlimited value, clothing, and anything you need for medical purposes. If you know it's, a, it's a quite a nice, um, you know, motorized wheelchair, for example, or a CPAP machine, whatever you need for medical uh, use, and all of your clothing is exempt to an unlimited value. Uh, another important one is your work tools, your tools of the trade, up to a $10,000 value. If you file for bankruptcy, you're allowed to keep all of those. So, you know, you do an inventory, you look at a garage sale value, and the government wants you to reestablish yourself to so take away your work tools. Well, that just wouldn't help you, would it? No, exactly. And what about life insurance? Because everybody carries life insurance policies. Yeah, for the most part, your life insurance is fully exempt. Um, it matters who the beneficiary is. So you want to get some good advice on who's going to benefit uh, if you were to pass on, as long as it's a parent, grandparent, a child, or a spouse. It's a fully exempt policy, and those are usually the way they're structured. And then one last one, just quickly here, Elaine, is all pension plans as well. So if anybody is thinking if you go into bankruptcy, you got to surrender your pension plan, absolutely not. It's fully exempt. You're going to retain that pension plan no matter what. Excellent. So, and 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 in finishing, off this segment, Blair. I just want to remind folks, we covered a lot of information. There's a lot more information on this specific topic. Uh, The very best place to start is your website. It's sands-trustee.com. It's just filled with such good questions and answers, well-written, easy to understand. And then uh, if you want to take that next step, which I totally support uh, in, in somebody doing, is giving you guys a call. And that number is 1-800-661-3030. Getting, making that call, setting up an appointment, and, uh, and moving forward on this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the ring.